This week, we take a look at the space adventure slash family caper, Lost in Space. And along the way, we ask, were the visual effects completed by a first-generation PlayStation? Why is Gary Oldman speaking in overly poetic language? And why the design of the Jupiter spacecraft is wildly impractical for space travel? Danger, force-fed sci-fi. Danger! Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Force-Fed Sci-Fi Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Chris Drupp, and I am joined by my co-host, Will Robinson. JK, it's Sean Cole. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're going to need that sense of humor today as we are discussing 1998's clunker of a film, Lost Lost in Space. Yes, it is a clunker indeed, and it is a terrible flaming pile of doo-doo stew, as you would say. (laughs) To borrow... A phrase of mine. Yes. So let's jump in. So let's uh, <laughs> let's break down the plot of this film before we get into the nitty gritty. So when Earth is dying, a brilliant scientist volunteers his family to travel across the galaxy to find a new home. They bring a, along a hotshot sex crazed pilot and have to contend with a stowaway who has betrayed them and tried to kill them during their flight. And when this act of sabotage throws the ship off course and into uncharted space. They must now band together to find a way to their new home. Yeah, I'd say that's spot on. Yeah. Sex crazed pilot, definitely, and lunatic villain. You know, on paper, this is actually a really good cast. Yes. So, directed by Stephen Hopkins, who previously directed Predator 2 and The Ghost in the Darkness, which is the uh, Val Kilmer, Michael Douglas lion hunting film. Yeah. Okay. The Ghost in the Darkness is actually a pretty good film. The Ghost in the Darkness? All yes. Right. All right. Uh, written by previous podcast subject Akiva Goldsmith, who uh, wrote iRobot. Hey. But pretty much works on other mediocre scripts with the exception of A Time to Kill and The Client, both oh, okay. John Grisham adaptations. So that was it. That's pretty much it. So, yeah, Akiva Goldsmith, you're a... Uh, not exactly high on the list of uh, superior works. No, no. This Neither are you, like Stephen Hopkins. It was <laughs> you, you are not escaping the ire this time. Not at all. So this was just set up to fail. Pretty much. Oh, oh, he directed A Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child. Which is a, a bastion, a pillar of horror films. But uh, the, like I said, on paper, this cast is pretty good. It's starring William Hurt. Yeah. It's John Robinson. Uh, yeah. I, Won an, won an Academy Award for A Kiss of the Spider-Woman, which mm-hmm. admittedly I haven't seen and I have no idea what it's about, but it's a very interesting, intriguing title. Right. We've got Gary Oldman, who's legend. Uh, Yeah, the legendary Gary Oldman as uh, the traitorous Dr. Smith. I mean, the the man literally has a great film to his name every year going as far back as 1991. Yeah. Like JFK, Bram Stoker's Dracula, True Romance, Leon the Professional- in the fifth element, the man literally does a great movie every single year. Yeah. Well, this is in the 90s when he did a great film. For every great film he did, he did a horrible film following right up. Yeah. I think he viewed this one as like, I can do overly poetic language and it might be okay. Can overact and become a giant bug. Uh, starring uh, Mimi Rogers as Maureen Robinson. Yeah. She's She has a ton of credits in film and television, but- I think the what she's most prominently known for is 
Mrs. Kensington and Austin Powers, International Man oh, of Mystery. Okay, gotcha. All right, so not too giant. And then we've got uh, Matt LeBlanc. Yes, we, Le got, Blanc. we got Matt LeBlanc. Whose uh, last name is like a wine. <laughs> it almost sounds like. Uh, Definitely most well-known for uh, Joey How You Doing, Tribbiani, from mm -hmm. Friends, the, uh, the, the now classic television show. We get a very yeah. young Heather Graham as Judy Robinson. Yeah. Starred in uh, Boogie Nights the yeah. previous year in uh, Swingers in 1996. So she was her star was rising in the mid to late 90s. Mm -hmm. Young Lacey Chabert as Penny Robinson. She was actually the original voice of Meg and Family Guy, but amicably left the show. And then we have Jared Harris. I don't know. Have you... He's a, he plays the older Will Robinson, but Jack mm -hmm. Johnson, not the singer, uh, plays yeah. a younger Will Robinson. He stopped acting around 2001. And now he's like a professor or something. I actually looked up. He's a cinematographer. He's he actually a cinematographer He worked now. on the um, uh, Free go. State of Jones, which starred Matthew McConaughey and Mahershala Ali. Not a great film, but a decent watch. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's very rare that child actors continue acting into their in their later years especially if they make millions i mean even macaulay culkin he stopped acting in anything mainstream years ago well now he just i don't know what he does <laughs> i know he's on uh that red letter media mm -hmm. youtube where he just makes fun of himself but it's like how do you survive young man did that home alone money reach that far home alone money probably ran out <laughs> probably but and then rounding out the cast in almost like a cameo appearance we get lenny james who's one of my personal favorite character actors he plays a uh, jeb walker lenny uh james. major west's uh buddy from the beginning of the film that he saves and later shows up looking for major west oh the dude with the voice yeah he yeah the, where you're just like why is this voice so his accent is inexplicable to me, I have no idea what he's doing, where yeah. that accent comes from. It's one of the many things in this film where you're just like shaking your head, going, "What is happening?" So it's a gr it's a great cast, but I'm I was so sh shocked to see so many mediocre performances from all of them. I mean, great cast. Yeah, we've got a guy that just is friends. That's like a sitcom. Well, William, you can't just do a sitcom and translate that to William the silver Hurt screen. and Gary Oldman. Yeah, two Oscar winners two right solid. there. Solid. Yes. Uh, then by no means is Matt LeBlanc like the be all and end all of actors, but he's a solid actor. He does, he does what he can. He seemed kind of tired though. He throughout. definitely did because he was flying back and forth between London and the States to film Friends and this film. So he was good guy. He was pulling overtime on this one. They must have given him like a big, big salary. Must have because this was made on a budget of eighty million dollars. Did he get divorced when he made this? I'm I don't like, think so. Okay, maybe had a child need some extra money. No, no. He just did this for maybe to break in. So an $80 million budget in today's money translates to about $124 million. So huge budget for the time. Jesus. And if only. And this is a, the this is the major motion picture remake of the television show that aired from 1965 to 1968. And we're not going to dive too much into the no. television show at this time because- Admittedly, I am unfamiliar with the show. <laughs> it just I've seen a couple episodes. Um in the sixties there was just a lot of hokey TV shows that were very silly, like Land of Giants, um Time what is that, Time Machine or whatever. It, well Star Trek silly. kicked off this whole craze of yes. doing these space adventure shows. 
And then we got subsequent ripoffs from that. I mean, yeah. Lost in Space definitely falls into that category, in my opinion. Well, yeah. Or you could say the Voyager, Star Trek Voyager ripped off Lost in Space, huh? I would say Voyager ripped off the next generation because <laughs> that's true. Yes, they did. I mean, but I was surprised to find out that several actors from the show make cameos in the film. That's what I saw, too. Uh, Dick yeah. Tufeld uh, reprises his role of the as the voice of the robot. Danger! Danger, Will Robinson. Which I feel like that's a no-show job. That's all done in post-production. Oh, totally. <laughs> Just got to show up. Uh, Mark Goddard, who played the uh, original Major West on the show, uh, plays the general in the film. Oh, the guy at the beginning. I mm -hmm. gotcha. And June Lockhart was the original Maureen Robinson as Will's principal this yeah. time around as the hologram that Will likes to mess with. Yeah, changing the body and everything. Uh, Marta Kristen and Angela Cartwright, who were the original Robinson girls, they play the reporters in the film who ask questions at the opening press conference. So, uh, yeah, like I feel like all the other speaking roles that were in the film just went to the original actors from the show. Weirdly, the two original actors who were supportive of the new film did not make cameo appearances. The actor who played the original, Will Robinson, wanted to return as the older Will Robinson. And they said no. But the director thought that that would be too distracting from the plot, but I don't think anybody would realize, hey, that's the original old Will Robinson from the show. Yeah, I wonder how many people are like, ooh, lost in space. And the original actor who played Dr. Smith, Jonathan Harris, he wanted to reprise his role as Dr. Smith and refused to appear when he was not given that chance. <laughs> what? That seems very diva-ish to me. That is diva. How can you even- Only be... me can play this role. How can you be upset about that when they got Gary Oldman to play the new you? Thought he could do it better. Like, if they got Daniel Craig to cast me in the movie of my life, I would be like, oh, okay, I'm good with that. Like, I don't need a cameo. Like, you got Daniel Craig to play me. No, just give me some money. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> just give me a I'll be happy money. with some money, and I will show up to the premiere, but you got Daniel Craig as me. Awesome sauce. So what else about this? Do you want to dive into uh, how insufferable the characters were? I have to preface this by saying that these are some of the worst characters <laughs> we have ever encountered in watching any movie for this show. I think. Do you think they're worse than The Postman? Because the postman was pretty bad. The postman had one singular awful character, and that was the postman. <laughs> yeah. Or the manger in that movie. He was an interesting character. Yeah. And there were a lot of layers to him. He would have made a great movie by himself. Yeah. But in this, the two best actors in the film are so bad. Are they're not bad. It's the characters themselves who are bad, and are, God bless their souls, they're doing the best they can to salvage it. I took Will and he was just like checked out halfway through because just the dialogue, he just was, it almost sounded like he was muttering it. And he was definitely this edition of uh, Who's Bad at Your Job. Yeah. He's, he's the worst father I've ever seen in my entire he life. He is the worst film dad we've ever seen. Ever. He did not care about his kids. Work was first. But then he would try to like be there for them. It's like, no, 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 you abandon this family. Go get your cigarettes. Well, it seems like all he does is create apology videos for his children. Endless. That's all he does. And his kids are like super brilliant. Like his son says halfway or like at the end, you never listen to me whenever I have a good idea. His son is building time travel devices and you're not there to see that. It doesn't even care about it. He just like writes it off. Like, ah, His son can creation. reprogram complex security robots, and you're just like, huh. Whatever. You just shrug your shoulders and go, all right. It's like, how many first place medals does this kid need to get from the science fair for you to finally give him some attention? He's trying to buy his dad's love. 
He is. I mean, and Penny is also pretty capable. She's able to fix like the video technology and is, I mean, she's not as capable as her brother is, but she's, mm-hmm. it's refreshing to see a film like this where the kids actually contribute mm-hmm. to the, to the mission itself. Did you like those videos that she made? No. Throughout the film, Penny would just like quick cut to what would be nowadays if you like took a selfie and she would just take one muttering about how hot the captain was, the major was, I'm sorry, how stupid her brother was. And every single time, the little guy, Will Robinson, would walk by and say something silly. And then she'd quickly shut it off. She, Penny doesn't do much in the film, period. She doesn't do jack. No, we don't see her doing any work like what her brother is doing or even what her older sister Judy is doing. No, she just complains. Really, her only purpose in the film is to be act like this mother figure to blarp yeah this creepy little uh i i guess for lack of a better word to describe it monkey that shows up halfway through the film and it becomes the family pet yeah and it was horrible cgi whatever that thing was yeah it's she just yeah she was pretty useless this is some of the worst visual effects i've seen in any film yeah and we have discussed films that come (laughs) from this period and this yeah. is my thought about visual effects at this time. If you want to do a visual effects heavy film like this at any time, mm-hmm. you have to make sure that you can pull off the look you're going for. Heck yeah. Especially with a giant budget of $80 million. This is garbage. I mean, Blarp especially, and all the scenes that it's in, it just looks terrible. Awful. No good stuff. It's horrible. And then in the beginning, that weird space fight we get, it looks like the opening level of some crappy PlayStation 1 game. I know. I thought it was a joke. I'm like, are you kidding me right now? With these horrible quick cuts to super close uh, depictions of their actors' faces? And it's like, they didn't even know what they were in. It's one of the weirdest prologues I've ever seen in any film. It just jumps right in. I mean, they, I, they get what they were going for. They were trying to set up a cold open mm-hmm. for the film and set up the action and where the film could be going. But then, like, right after that prologue and the main title comes on, all the action comes to a screeching halt. Yeah. Like, at least with something, for instance, like a James Bond film, if we got that cold open, the action may not immediately come to a screeching halt, but there would still be more exposition that would follow it to yes. say like what's happening and set up the story. And you get the awesome like opening music. Yeah. We don't get that with this. What we get is just opening action sequence prologue and then we're immediately thrown into the story of Earth is dying and Dr. Robinson is taking his family away. That's all we get. And doesn't it open up to Dr. Robinson? I remember when they opened, I'm like, why isn't this the opening? <laughs> this is so much more interesting. Dr. Robinson. The world is dying. We need you to go out in space. It's like, all right, this is much more interesting than this random (laughs) freaking space battle. Grant, his mission is important. Yeah. But he's forgetting his first mandate. He's a father and a husband. And he's he's ignoring those two priorities to save the world. Yeah. Which, Which, granted, I'm not diminishing the importance of his mission. I'm saying his first priority should be as a father and a husband. Yeah. I mean, especially since he's volunteered his family to leave Earth and take them across the galaxy to Alpha Prime. I know. It doesn't feel like this is the first time he's done it. Because, like, the way the kids were talking about, again, we have to go in space. Well, they make it sound like he's been gone for extended periods of time before. Not like like going to space before. Because they've trained for this mission. They've been doing simulations and Mm -hmm. 
you know, G-forces and all that. I know. He just, he seems like the non-existent parent. I mean, if he does recognize that space travel is dangerous, why is he so willing to put his entire family, family at risk? at jeopardy just for like his own? Why doesn't he just go to Alpha Prime, make the journey, and then know. once that's complete, assuming the Hypergate will be complete by the time he gets there, yeah. his family can just join him like in a snap. I know. I didn't understand like what took, why, why they all need to be there. At least they didn't, thank God, they didn't make battle stations specific for each kid. Well, it was pretty stupid when Will got into the hologram of the robot. Yeah, he just started control. Well, they had to give him something to do. He already had plenty of do. He was already building time travel. He was working on the robot mm-hmm. pretty effectively. Well, his dad and Major West were just arguing all the freaking Doing time. Absolutely nothing. It was like a pissing contest. And then his wife would come in, Maureen. And just always diffuse the argument. Yeah, and then Dr. Smith is just there with a sarcastic comment. I definitely feel like Major West punched him way later in the film than he should have. He should have just, as soon as he figured out what he did by sabotaging the robot, he should have just punched him right in the head then. Yeah, I mean, I hated the fact that he was the sabotage guy. And the way that he did sabotage the mission with the robot was stupid. It didn't make a ton of sense. No, and it's like you built up this entire space flight, and now you're going to sabotage it right in just to put him in peril. I'm like, come on, there's better ways. There's better writing. And Smith should have recognized that he was just a pawn by, I guess, the, the global sedition or whatever. Yeah. That he should have just realized that they were more than likely going to kill him once he finished his mission. Yeah, which they tried. But he ended up dying anyways. Well, no, he didn't die. Smith didn't die. I thought Smith does die. No. The sp- uh, Spider Smith yeah, dies. Yeah, that's what I not, mean. Spider not, Smith. Not the Smith in the outside the time bubble. That's right. He just pushes him off like a three-story building and he hits the ground and somehow survives. Well, I guess he landed <laughs> on like a space mushroom or something that's like, a land- like landing on a fluffy cloud or something. Bale of hay. Yeah, that's right. You'd think that the spider smith would know the area (laughs) in which he was going to kill his own guy. He's not interesting enough of a character to where you forgive the poetic dialogue. No, he's a cartoon character. Now, I will admit, I have no frame of reference for how this character was in the television show. So maybe Dr. Smith in the film is like how he was on the television show, but I don't know this. Well, they do say Gary Oldman like is diligent with his preparation of characters. Like Daniel Day-Lewis? Yeah, that's what they say. Yeah, but I don't think this was the way of going about it because, I mean, if you're going to go the Daniel Day-Lewis route, maybe you would have won more Oscars by now, Gary Oldman. <laughs> Whoa! Gary Oldman, great actor. But Daniel Day-Lewis built a house of 18th, with 18th century tools to prepare for Last of the Mohicans. All right, but all right. But Gary Oldman was, like, severely overlooked in the yeah, 90s that and is 2000s because they're like, hey, he just does weird sci-fi films. He's loud and obnoxious. Who would have thought? No, he's not. He's the best Jim Gordon we ever got. Dang straight. He should have got a nod for that. But anyways, this isn't about that awesome film. This is about <laughs> this crappy trash fire heap. It was like Gary Oldman's character was the only one, like, hamming it up, too. Yeah. Which felt, it felt so awkward because you're just, why is this guy acting schlocky? And everyone else is just the well, super Well, Oldman serious. and Hurt were the two like top-billed actors. Yeah. And Matt LeBlanc was going to get some viewership in there because Friends was still the most popular show on television at the time. Do you think the the audience that came to see this was like partially Friends? Like 25% <laughs> of the views? Probably. They were expecting <laughs> him to just look at the camera and go, how you doing? <laughs> 
Or like wanting to go like, Joey doesn't share food. <laughs> I've never seen Friends. Have you? I love the show, actually. Uh, was he anything like the character in Friends? With the exception of being like a sex maniac. Oh, okay. So he's like that in Friends? In literally every episode of Friends, Joey Tribbiani is betting some new woman despite how stupid he is. So maybe that's what they took. They're like, oh, yeah, we'll take that one freaking quality from your character from the show and put it. The worst quality. The whole time he's trying to bang Judy Robinson. In the worst possible ways. And then she, and, and at the end of the film, it looks like she's caving towards the advances just because he was able to pilot the ship through the planet and save them. It's like really the entire film prior to this, you had nothing but animosity towards this man. And now he's able to fly the ship one time. You just plant a big old kiss on him. And then they end up blowing up. Girl anyways. has some self-respect. He's got to work for that. But I mean, come on, man. Like, just the dialogue was terrible. Should we do it here? It's just like, what? You, you know, barely even know the lady. I was entirely confused by what direction this film was going for. No idea. We have that dizzying opening sequence that we talked about. I mean, personally, I actually enjoyed the first 50 minutes or so. I thought it was a decent movie. Okay. But then they're on the Proteus. They're encountering the spiders. Okay. It's, you know, the, the tension is getting, you know, ratcheted up. But then we see Major West put together that rifle and that weird looking battle suit. And then it became this entirely different I know. film. It's like they took elements from like Star Wars, Star Trek, all the different popular sci-fi things from up till then. And they're like, let's just cram all these different tropes in a film and see what happens. Yeah. I don't understand the desire to try and make Matt LeBlanc into something resembling an action hero. He's not. He's not. He doesn't have the face of one. <laughs> well, the original choice for the role was uh, Sean Patrick Flannery, who uh, he's, he's uh, in the, one of the brothers in the Boondock Saints film. Oh, okay. And he, he was also, for a long time, he was on uh, the Adventures of Young Indiana Jones television series. Okay. Where he played Young Indiana Jones. All right. But they let him go during rehearsals because they thought he looked too much like William Hurt. If they had kept Sean Patrick Flannery, he would have pulled off the convincing action hero look. Yeah. Or somebody who isn't known on television every week playing a likable idiot. Yeah. I will never picture Matt LeBlanc as anything or anyone other than Joey from Friends. I like Joey. I don't like Don West. Don West is terrible. <laughs> He's a horrible person. He's overly arrogant. He's sex crazed, even though he's on this 10-year mission. There's only one woman that he could potentially get with, and it's a woman who's repeatedly rebuffed his advances. And he's like, well, I'm going to make you do it either way because you're my only option. It's just like, wow. Judy should just wait until someone better shows up on Alpha Prime. Or just wait till her sister turns 18. It's like she's got two years. Yeah, she's- She's stupid enough. Penny's got time to, like- you know, age and grow up and then act on her crush. Yeah. Also, too, adding the whole time bubble threat was just confusing. It didn't make a, yeah. a ton of sense compared to the other depictions of time travel we've seen. Yeah. Well, for one thing, the time bubble, we see, like, the, we see the Jupiter in the timeline we're familiar with outside the time bubble. Mm -hmm. And then they go in the time bubble, and then the other Jupiter, too, is there what's happening with the, the geography of this time uh, bubble? I don't know. It doesn't make sense. The last third of the film, it doesn't make any sense. They're just like, we have no idea what we're doing. We 
We took a bunch of drugs. We're on like our sea riders. We're just going to throw a bunch of ideas against the board and just, yeah, what? Spider villain, uh, time bubble blowing up the ship. And I get making Smith into a literal monster, <laughs> but he was already a despicable character, so turning him into a giant spider just seemed a bit ostentatious to me. I know, and he was alluding to it the whole film. I'm not a good person. Monsters are real. <laughs> Look at me. The second half of the film is what really drags it down. It went from being this mysterious space adventure when they're investigating what happened to the Proteus, and then the actual lost part is what derails this film. Getting lost on this planet that, what was the problem with it? I mean, besides everything? I mean, God, I remember there's like a problem. They like went out. They didn't the have ship. fuel. They didn't have fuel. They had to get fuel from the rocks. Or they had something. to go into the time bubble for some reason. And then they and then do. And this time bubble just showed up randomly where they happen to be. And then it's uh, young Will Robinson that's balding and like Spider Monkey Man. And it's just like, what is going on? I've created this own time zone so I can go back in time and blow up the ship. It's just like, wait, is this going to be one of those like repeating loop films? Because at first I was like, oh, that would be interesting. But then I realized, oh, nope. You know, I do think this is actually the best depiction of how time travel could potentially work. And I've said this before. Yeah. It's going to require a huge energy source. Yeah. And what better source than a massive nuclear proton reactor, whatever they're using to power the Jupiter 2 ship. I mean, yes, it's going to require a power source like that. Yeah. I mean, it's briefly mentioned, but it just it feels... it feels right that this is the depiction. Yeah, I li I actually enjoyed the um what they used for the time warp, the time machine. That was actually pretty dope. And then I feel like the film could have ended a bit better as opposed to just hyperdriving away from the black hole and suddenly the adventure is over. I know. <laughs> they had no idea. Like hit the hyperdrive. We ran out of money. Uh maybe we're going to have a sequel. Uh I don't know. Did you like the whole hi mom? <laughs> Where <laughs> you get the older Will Robinson. That was weird. So weird. It was so weird. He's like looking from above. Well, because that actually isn't Jared Harris's voice. That, that I, He was dubbed in post-production. He was dubbed? Uh-huh. So the whole film. It's not his voice. Jared Harris is a full-on British actor. What the crap, he, man? But he didn't have the vocal scale that the producers were looking for, so they redubbed his voice in post. Wow. Maybe if they would have left it in, it would have been more interesting. Maybe. I mean, because British people are always more interesting. I mean, they just sound nefarious with their accents. I mean, prove me wrong, but like every great villain is British. Okay. Or mo like 80% of them so are then, British. Okay, so then I'm not crazy. Because when I'm watching it, I'm like, Jared Harris, I don't think he sounds like he, that. No, he does not sound like, like that. I'm like, wow, he did an insatiable job on the accent no, if you watch random um, film. If you watch the series Chernobyl on HBO, that's his accent. Okay. Yeah, did you like the whole spider monkey, man? No. You know, you know what happened to my parents? You never told me. How has he been? Your it took him 20 years to figure out that he ate the women. Like, come on, dude. Wait, he ate them? Yeah, he he ate the he ate uh, Judy and Penny and Maureen. <laughs> oh, I thought he... Oh, man, I just thought he like stabbed them. I didn't know he actually ate them. Yeah, or he killed them. He did something to them. That spider is... Smith knew what happened to the women. Yeah, Spider... Oh, my God. This just terrible. The C How'd you like Spider-Smith? Mm, terrible. CGI was terrible. Awful. The I couldn't tell if it was makeup, like on his face, and I then think, the rest was CGI? I think they, well, I think they performance captured his face and then nothing else. It's terrible. 
It's all bad. All bad. Although this movie did get me thinking about potential habitable planets either yeah. within our solar system or ones that could be close in the future. Well, for starters, you need to start with a star that is similar to our sun or that of a red dwarf. Mm-hmm. And they also need to be located within what's commonly known as the Goldilocks zone or it's the zone that's far enough away from the sun to not cook the surface, but also not far enough away to where things will freeze. I mean, there also needs to be oxygen because duh. Yeah. How are things going to survive without it? (laughs) There's two main categories that these can be um, divided in. There's the conservative uh, habitable zone is the range of orbits around a star with a planetary surface that can support liquid water given the proper atmospheric pressure. However, this does not ensure habitability, but only the possibility of it. Then there's the optimistic habitable zone of planets that do not orbit within the conservative zone, but are within the wider boundaries of that zone, but are less likely to maintain surface water. Mm-hmm. But there are, there's over 30 potentially habitable planets. However, the farthest planet is over 2,500 light years away, and the closest <laughs> one is 15 or 17 light years away. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. It's like 200 years or thousands of years. I can't even, I forget the math. NASA hasn't devoted, and it probably will not devote, any portion of its budget to exploring the potential habitability of these planets. I mean, especially with the launch of the Artemis program, which is going to be looking at ways to go to Mars. Yeah. That's, it's not going to happen. And then that's not saying NASA won't explore potentially other planets, but the technology simply isn't there to make any sort of journey to another planet just to check it out. No, it's not worth it. I mean, you can't. You, we can't just do a drive-by of it. Like, does it no. look habitable? We'd die. Like, that's so far. No, you have to send a probe. You have to, if yeah. it's habitable, habitable, you can send an exploration crew. But again, it's dangerous. Space travel is so freaking dangerous. I know people never think about it, but like we covered in our uh, what the heck, um, Houston, we've had a problem. Apollo thirteen. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's so dangerous. I don't know how many. Freaking space travel movies we need to talk about to get it in people's minds that it's dangerous. Yeah. Speaking of dangerous, Sean, did you have a red shirt? I don't even think so. I couldn't even like think about how horrible this film was. This film is a red shirt. My heart is a red shirt. <laughs> no, you know, my eyes and brain and ears are are red shirt from dealing with this crap. How about yours? My red shirt is Jeb. Who the hell was Jeb? The, the Major West buddy who was looking for him on the Proteus. Oh, yeah, the dude with the accent? Yeah. Well, it's not exactly clear when Jeb mounted this rescue mission of it's the Jupiter 2. It's not clear why he's in this film. He's in it at the beginning, and then they just throw a video of it. Hey, we're, we're still looking for you, man. It's just like, what? Why is he in this? Well, it's even less clear as to when he's killed, but it's clear yeah. he was a devoted friend, and he was a capable soldier, but then he's given this unceremonious off-screen and assumed to be brutal death at the hands of all the spiders. Why even put that in the film? Well, speaking of things that didn't make sense, did you have a lens flare? Um, the space battle at the beginning. Um, Jared Harris's balding head. That was weird. Horrible makeup design. Everything CGI. Yeah, the movie was a lens flare <laughs> on my soul. The entire I, movie. I freaking hate it. You know, my my lens flare, it has to be all of Don West. <laughs> all of him. I can understand the attempts to inject some humor into the film, 
But it could have been spread among the other actors and not put all in the shoulders of Matt LeBlanc. I know. They're like, you're funny. You're from Friends. Do funny things. It's like, ah. Plus, when does John Robinson just walk up to him and punch him in the jaw for continuing to hit on his daughter? Right? Like, is he that bad of a father that they don't talk? Like, do you not realize the stakes that we're in right now and all you can think about is bone in my daughter? Right. Seriously? Right. To be honest, though, I could have chosen a dozen other things for my lens flare, but this is the one for me that's present throughout the entire film. Yeah, and it never and he stops. Seems, and he's more of a cliche than that of a real character. He is a cliche. The whole movie is a cliche. <laughs> it's like they, like I said, they just had a whiteboard of cliches, and they're like, that's it, it, ah, who cares? How could you have a budget of $80 million and make this terrible of a film? Well, I think that's a, an appropriate segue to discuss the legacy of this film. Yes. So to say that this movie was a dud is an incredible understatement. But it made money. It didn't make a ton of money. It made $136 million. Which? How is that even possible? Because it wasn't <laughs> enough to make up for the massive budget that they sunk into it. Oh, so you're telling me that, oh, but there was $80 million. It's Yeah, $80 million, but they had a whole franchise mapped out for this film. <laughs> they had there were plans for a reboot of the live action series what? along with an animated series. There were licensing deals for the toys along with tie-in novels. Those all fell through once the movie didn't make up its budget. So imagine an $80 million production budget, but for all of this for live action series and an animated series, all the toy licensing and novel deals. I would tack on at least another $100 million onto the budget. And that's not even including the marketing of it. I mean, did they see the movie? How can you watch this and be like, oh, yeah, we're going to spawn a franchise, baby? No. It didn't happen. No. I think we have a better chance of spawning a franchise with, um, uh, what the hell was that movie? The Fraudulent. A Sound of Thunder. Sound of Fraudulent Thunder. I mean, do you think they're on par graphics-wise? Visual effects. I would have to agree with that. <laughs> I think assessment. they're on. I think that's whereas, yeah. whereas this film can be excused as being, you know, in the infancy of computer graphics, whereas A Sound of Thunder is just the producers and investors of the film doing very nefarious things. I don't know. And being under FBI investigation. <laughs> which is still we never had, going to be not funny to say. But Jurassic Park came out five years earlier, man. I think less of a budget. And it's still... Man, I don't know. God, this film sucks. However, this was actually the film that ended Titanic's string of 15 straight weeks <laughs> being at number one in the box office. This actually earned it the nickname The Iceberg. It's probably because people got tired of seeing Titanic, so they wanted to see Lost in something, Space for a change. Please put something else. Not surprisingly, though, it holds a 28% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And Roger Ebert gave it one and a half stars, calling it a dim-witted shoot-em-up. Well, that, I feel like that that's very appropriate. It is. Incredibly, though, this earned six nominations at the 25th Annual Saturn Awards. Get I the did, heck out I of here. I did not look up what individual awards it was nominated for because... No. Why? Oh, uh, Best Supporting Actor for Gary Oldman. Why? <laughs> All the whys for that. It's probably because it was a movie where like he overacts so much. And, you know, sometimes the critics are like, ooh, he's doing something new and different. He's actually doing a good job. Well, however, in 2004, there was a pilot order to remake the original series. 
with John Woo actually serving as the director. Oh. Well, obviously, this was not picked up by any networks, and the show no. never got made. But the sets were sold to the producers of Battlestar Galactica remake and were redesigned for that show. Yeah. But in 2014, Legendary TV was developing a new Lost in Space series for Netflix, and the first season actually came out in April of 2018, and a second season was quickly ordered following the success of the first one, so... Yeah. The franchise isn't completely dead, but it's just alive in a different way. Oh, yeah. And I think with the format of this with, you know, Lost in Space... It's better served on a long format television series. Totally. You can't do a, a Lost in Space just on a one-off. Nah. Nah, none of it does it for you? Nah, I'm not interested to watch three movies and people <laughs> being lost. So, Sean, with all of that in mind, what is your rating for Lost in Space? Keeping in mind our system on the Force-Fed Sci-Fi podcast of wouldn't watch, would watch, would own, and would host a viewing party. What do you give to Lost in Space? To quote Mark Hamill, and I can't believe I'm quoting The Last Jedi, but I'm going to burn it to the ground. If I ever find a copy of this, I'm breaking it over my knee. <laughs> I'm throwing it out, man. You'll just throw $2 down on the floor like, yeah. here's, go clean, like Stewie hey, and Brian, clean yourself up. I'm going to go to Walmart and like buy all the copies and then burn all of them. Like, this is just terrible. I you would, should rent a steamroller because I feel like that would be more satisfying. Oh, it's terrible. I'm never, like, this is bad. Like, at least Postman, I kind of tried to get invested. And there was somewhat of, but there was nothing. Postman was nothing. three hours long. You mean to tell me you would enjoy the Postman over this? I think I would. At least this movie's palpable. You, it's over and done with in two hours. That's true, but it's so bad, and there's so much crap going on. At least I can laugh in the horrible mud wrestling scene in the Postman. <laughs> Where's this? It's, it's so bad. Yeah. It's terrible. I mean, for me, this is a tale of two films. In the first half, we're introduced to these new characters, but we're not certain on a handful of them and it's up until like the 50 minute mark it's an okay space adventure but i guess that's where it ends i guess we disagree on our versions of space adventure. like i said once west assembles that rifle and battle suit it turns <laughs> into this shoot 'em up style picture and despite the title the film cannot figure out the whole lost in space part what are we doing are we a film <sighs> the graphics are terrible the lines feel like the actors were just trying to get through them and not actually perform them. Though for me, this is just a straight would not watch. Don't waste your time. Do no. yourself a favor. Just watch some episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation. Yeah. At least those will have better graphics. Totally. Or like watch the new Lost in Space. Yeah. Hell, watch the old one. <laughs> Don't watch this. Yeah, the old one is probably better than this. Oh, I'm sure it is. So normally we would spend this portion of the show Enlisting our friendly random number generator AI, Major Samantha, yep. to pick our next film. But we have a special treat for you and our audience. In anticipation of the new film, Terminator Dark Fate, we are doing what we are calling the Terminator Suite. Ooh. Leading up to the premiere of Dark Fate. So as it is a direct sequel to Terminator 2 Judgment Day, we are reviewing the first film in the series next week, followed by Judgment Day, and culminating in our review of the highly anticipated sequel, Dark Fate. So for next week, please join us in watching The Terminator. And if you enjoyed today's show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. 
It really helps to drive us up the charts as well as help people like you find the show. We are across the spectrum of social media with Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at ForceFed Sci-Fi. You can check out and download episodes at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you find podcasts. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Finally, you can check out our website, forcefedsci-fi.com for show notes and links to all of our social media. So for all of us at the ForceFed Sci-Fi team, we will see you next time. ForceFed Sci-Fi is written and hosted by Sean Culp and Chris Rupp. Website design associate producer and editing by Jeremy Kesky. Artwork designed by Mike Berger. Theme music composed and performed by Custom Anthem.